morning, friends. We are in the midst of a sermon series in which we are kind of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We're visiting the places that he visited during his lifetime, and we're also visiting the places that our our team from Broadway visited while they were recently in Israel. So um, we're going to dive into that in just a moment. But first, I want to invite you to experience um, a spiritual practice that um, I hope that you will find life-giving. Back in the summer, we engaged in a practice called Lectio Divina, like every single week, all summer long. You might remember that. And the way that that works is we read a passage of scripture and we we read it several times. We listen for a word or a phrase that stands out to us. And then we listen for what God might be saying to us through that that has stood out. But we all learn differently, right? Right. Not all of us learn um, from that sort of engagement. Some of us prefer uh, to learn more visually. Some of us learn more from like art and pictures than we do in black and white. And so I wanted to introduce you to a practice that's kind of like Lectio, but it's called Visio Divina. And here's how it works. In a moment, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. And then um, I'm going to lead you through five different movements. The first movement is to go big. You're going to like take in the whole picture and then you're going to get small. You're going to focus on one thing and then you're going to listen for what God might be saying. You're going to speak back to God and then finally rest. You don't have to remember all that. That's the good news. I'm going to guide you through that, but just to give you all a roadmap of where we're going. So if you're ready, I'm going to put up the picture and again, go big. Look at everything in the picture. Notice the different colors. Notice the shapes. Notice the lightness and the darkness. Notice what's in the foreground and what is in the background as well. Now I want to invite us to get small, okay? You've looked at the whole picture. What is the one thing in this picture that grabs your attention? Whatever that is, I want you to just focus your attention solely on that for the next few minutes. What is it that leaps out at you? What is it that grabs your heart today? And if you've found that part, then what we're going to do is we're going to listen now. Why is it that that one aspect of the picture is standing out to you today? Is there something that God wants to say? Is there a sense of call or invitation? Listen to the stirrings of the Holy Spirit. And now speak. Um, talk to God about what it is that is being stirred up in you. What is it that you want to say today? Is there something you need to ask for? Is there something you need to confess? Is there something that you're longing for? And now that you've spoken, just rest. Rest knowing that the one who created this beautiful landscape and the one who created you is so very near and communes with you today. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we are so grateful for the way that you reveal yourself in, in nature and in the way that you reveal yourself to us through one another, in the way that you reveal yourself to us through your word. God, I pray that our eyes would be open, that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be open to receive whatever it is that you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we get started, there's some new faces in the room today, and I'm extremely excited to see them, and we didn't get to greet each other. So there might be someone around you that you would like to greet today. So we're going to stand and greet each other, and then we'll, we'll dive in. <laughs> So, never met you before. Hello. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello. So good to see you. Hello, sir. Good to see you. Hello. 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 Good job. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. He's a good one. Hello, sir. Good to see you. Hello, sir. I'm great. How about you? Can't come on. It's always good. Hi. I'm Laura. Hi. Good morning. Good to see you. Hey. Good morning. Good to have you all. Hello. 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 Good morning. Hello. Hi. Good morning. All right. have a seat. Again, uh, that practice is called uh, Visio Divina. That's something that you can do on your own. It's not something that you have to do here at church. I'm going to post it on social media, kind of the steps, so that you can pick that up and use it whenever you need. Um, but if we could put that picture back up again, I have to confess to you all that I almost did not come home to you all once I got to this spot on our trip. I know there was lots of concerns about, you know, the war began while we were there and uh, concerns about us getting back. But before any of that ever happened, I got to this place and I just wasn't sure that I ever wanted to leave. It is gorgeous. It is Caesarea by the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea that you see, uh, the sea that you um, are seeing there. Um, evidently Herod the Great, he thought that this was a gorgeous place as well. And so he decided that he was going to build a palace there. And you can um, look in the foreground. You might have noticed like the mosaic down here on that stone. Um, that's part of his palace when it stood there. I mean, he had good taste, right? Like I would pick that place for my, my home. Um, but not only did he have his home there, he made this like huge facility. There's an amphitheater that's there, uh, which is gorgeous when you're sitting there in the amphitheater. Um, my back right at that moment is the Mediterranean Sea. So not only are you taking in the play or the music, but you're seeing the sea behind it. Pretty nice. Um, there's also, um, this is where they had the horse and chariot races. Evan, I thought of you while I was there. Like, yeah, that would be awesome, right? Uh, that's the Hippodrome. And then um, they had this amazing aqueduct system um, that still stands after all these years that brought water into Caesarea, Philippi, or Caesarea by the um, now, this place, whenever he built it, whenever Herod the Great built it, he wanted to like build the city that would rival all the other cities in the Roman Empire. He really wanted to impress his boss, Caesar. And so he named the city 
Caesarea, right? Names it after him. Um, and it was a, a great city, a beautiful city, one that would uh, figure pretty prominently into the story of the early church. When you go to the book of Acts, you'll hear it talk about Caesarea, and it's talking about Caesarea by the sea. Um, it's the place where the very first Gentiles were baptized. Whenever Peter went to the home of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit came on the people there, he baptized them in the Mediterranean. And then um, Paul, when he was in his ministry, you might remember he got in prison a few times. This is one of the places where he was. And there's actual, actually one spot where they believe that he would have been housed there. Uh, but Jesus, in his journey, he didn't necessarily make his way over to Caesarea by the sea. He went to a different Caesarea altogether. If we look at the map, I can um, kind of point out the difference. You can see Caesarea by the sea is over here um, uh, by the Mediterranean. And then up to the northeast, there is a place called Caesarea Philippi. Um, the son of King Herod, he was named Herod Philip II. And like his father wanted to impress his boss, wanted to name a place after him. So he names a city that was once named Panius when the Greeks ruled over it. He changes it to Caesarea. But of course, it's confusing to have two Caesareas, right? So he's like, I got to put something else on the end of it. So while I'm honoring Caesar, I might as well honor myself, right? Caesarea Philippi, thus its name. Um, you can look at this map and you can see um, he was also known as um, Herod the Tetrarch. And so you can see his area up there in the northeast. And Caesarea Philippi became the capital of his territory. And it was really this place where the Jewish world and the Gentile world met. Um, this is actually one of the places that I did not get to go visit on our trip. Um, if you look at the modern map, you'll see why. You can see up in the northeast an area that says Gaulin. That's the Gaulin Heights. And you can see there's little lines through it. Those lines mean that that's occupied territory. Israel occupies that land. Um, and uh, you can see that Syria and Lebanon border it. It's kind of contest a contested area. So we felt like it might not be wise to go there. We didn't go um, to the, into the Golan Heights, um, but that's, that's where we would have gone if we would have been able. So you and I, we get to go on this journey to Caesarea Philippi all together for the first time. Unless someone here has already been there, which you all might have been there, right? But um, didn't you all, did you all get to go to Caesarea Philippi when you were there? You went to the Gone Heights, yeah. Um, so um, this is a city that had existed for a very long time. It was very fertile. It was very beautiful. And so lots of people like to go there. And not only do they like to go there, they like to worship there. So in the Old Testament, you read about people worshiping um, the god Baal. Caesarea Philippi, or whatever it was called in that moment before then, uh, was the place where they would go to do that. And then when the Greeks came in and they conquered, they began to worship a god named Pan there. Um, uh, that was kind of like half goat, half human. Um, they would come to the spot to worship him. And then whenever the Romans take over, they see Caesar as divine, as, as a god. And so what do they do? They set up a temple of marble to worship him in this same place. So over all this time, when people would come to this area, the question that they would ponder, the question that they would ask themselves again and again and again across generation and generation and generation was, who is God? 
who's the divine? For whatever reason, this place would call forth that question. And so why was that? Why this place? Well, when people were in this place, they tended to be overwhelmed by the sense that they were a part of something so much bigger than themselves. Um, maybe you can think of a place that does that. You know, you walk into a certain place and, and you just like feel in awe and wonder. Um, maybe it's with a group of people. Uh, maybe it's a sanctuary. Jeremy and I, um, you've heard me say before, we, we lived in Poland and we had a group of students. Y'all can, y'all can uh, continue to pray for Jeremy because I think he's still recovering from this. But we had a team of students that came to work with us one summer. There were 11 of them, and all of them were girls. So it was Jeremy and 12 ladies that he took around everywhere. We'd taken these ladies down to um, Krakow, and um, we were touring the city. And um, we were kind of bored. We are like, oh, he's seen this stuff. You know, like, what do we do? And we're just hanging out in the city square waiting for them and one of the options was to go inside this church and I'll be honest you guys you go to Europe there's like churches everywhere right and uh, the city we lived in um, had this one little island that had five churches in it on it so like we'd been in a lot of churches and I was like what's one more church right and I don't want to pay to go in this place but we had nothing else to do so we went inside and man was I glad that we did um, I walked in that room and like stopped breathing for a moment I was so overcome by wonder you know out of the busyness of the city I'd suddenly walked into this place where it was like time stood still it was quiet and from the middle of the day, I suddenly found myself beneath like the starry sky and there was gold all around me and pictures and uh, paintings and stained glass. And so I like could not not just like sit down and spend a little time with God in that spot. And in a similar way, when people came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, they would encounter things that did the same thing, same things that made them just stand in awe and wonder like this like beautiful waterfalls. Um, this is one of the streams that feeds into, one of the main streams that feeds into the Jordan River, which explains why it's such a contested area. You know, that's the only fresh water that comes into Israel, or this main source. So um, you'd see this, this kind of beauty. And then you'd see this area. This is... Um, this is the opening to a cave. You can kind of see people at the very bottom to kind of get a sense of the, the scale. Um, but this cave was, was a pretty big cave. It was set in this large cliff that's multicolored and beautiful. Uh, that's like 161 feet tall. And then you can see this water coming down in a small waterfall. Back in the first century, if you would have gone here, what you would have encountered is this water gushing out from that rock, from the opening in that cave. And so it was breathtaking when people would encounter it. Um, it was so breathtaking, in fact, that they felt like this was the site of the divine. Uh, they came to believe that um, that also this was the, the opening of the cave was the opening to the gates of Hades, the place where the dead dwelled. And so it was here in this place where sacrifices were made to the, to the god Baal. It was here in this place um, that people came to worship Pan. And then it was in this place that they erected that marble temple to Caesar. 
Where we pick up the story in the Bible, what we find is that Jesus also goes to this place. He takes his disciples, and they kind of go way out of their way to get there, all right? Um, This is the furthest north that they're ever going to go in their entire time together. Usually, we read about Jesus going into a place, and he's teaching people, and he's healing people. All these wonders are going on. There's crowds of people around. But we get to Caesarea Philippi, which would have been like a two-day journey from the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was doing most of his ministry, they make this big trip up there, and guess what happens? Not much. (laughs) In fact, the only thing we read in, in this passage is that when they get there, Jesus is having this kind of one on one conversation with his disciples. He's brought them all the way up there to ask them a question. He's brought them to this spot where people have come for for thousands of years to experience and worship the divine. He's standing, most likely scholars think, up on that big old multicolored cliff that we saw overlooking that water and the cave and the temple to Caesar. Whenever he asked his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the son of man is? And whenever we read that, we might wonder for a second, like, what's going on here, right? Is Jesus having like an identity crisis in this moment? Is he not sure who he's supposed to be? Is he needing the crowd and the disciples to to tell him who he is? Because if we're honest, we're all tempted to do that at times, right? We're tempted to try to find our identity outside of us. In fact, there are three primary places where we tend to look for our identity, And the first is in what we do. We look for it in like our job, our profession, right? Think about the small talk we tend to make with people. Um, If we're out in the welcome center or we're in the store, we're meeting a neighbor, we're at a party and we're trying to get to know them, what is one of the first questions that we ask? What do you do, right? I do such and such. Um, Even when we talk to little kids and we want to get to know little kids, we'll ask them, we'll say, what do you want to be when you grow up? My son, Sam, who's four, wants to be a dinosaur. So, you know, it's not that helpful, but, but we still ask the question, why? Because we tend to measure and size people up by their job, by their profession, by what they do and what they produce and accomplish. And so it shouldn't be surprising that when Jesus, he poses this question to his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is, that they give him a response that, that points to that, to what he is doing. In verse 14, he says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People are looking at Jesus and they're saying, just look at him. Look how he's, how he's uh, proclaiming the truth and look how he's doing wonders just like the prophets of old. That's who he is. He's a prophet, period. Problem solved. Puzzle is over. But let me ask you all a question. If our identity is based on what we do, then what happens when that changes? What happens when we, for whatever reason, shift our job? Or what happens when when that job is, is taken away? What happens when we retire or when we aren't able to do the things that we once could? When we build our identity on what we do, we are not building our lives on stable, solid ground. We are building our lives on on sand, sand that can shift and sand that can shake. 
Now, in this moment there in Caesarea Philippi, whenever Jesus' disciples say, people say that you're a prophet, he could have in that moment just like conceded to that identity, right? He could have said, okay, people say that I'm a prophet um, and I, I kind of want to be like whoever they need me to be in this moment. And so that's who I'll be. I will be a prophet. And in doing so, kind of stumbled into the second place that you and I tend to look for our identity outside of us. And that is in what other people say about us. You know, he could have done that. He could have become what everyone else wanted and needed. He could have shifted into whatever would earn him the most applause and appreciation and attention. But at what cost? Um, last year I was, um, at a meeting and they had various speakers, um, at a church and I got to hear the, the chaplain of the Senate speak. He's very intelligent guy, very uh, powerful speaker, but he was describing to us how, um, you know, he not only stands up in front of Congress and prays over their session, but how he has Bible studies with our congressmen and how they gather um, together and how he uh, encourages them to stand up and to share their spiritual stories in front of one another, which sounds like unthinkable, right? Like, does this really happen? But evidently it does. And he was explaining how there are times where he will sit down with one of those senators, like one-on-one, and one of them will confess to him, like, you know what, I feel, I feel trapped. I feel like there's this role that I'm supposed to play, you know, that I'm supposed to say this and do this, and I don't even agree with it, but, but I have to be who everyone else says I have to be. And as he was explaining that and saying that about them, I'll be honest, I started to feel a little judgy about our senators. But usually when I start to feel judgy, um, conviction soon follows. <laughs> and it kind of hit me like, yeah, we can all do that, right? All of us can find ourselves in that place where we can bind to the lie that, that we have to be and we are who others say we are and mold and morph ourselves to their liking However, once again, whenever we do that, it is like we are building our lives on sand because what happens when the wind and the rain comes? What happens when their opinions change? At that point, our identity will just be swept away. And so there's one other place where we tend to look for our identity outside of us, and that is in what we accumulate. Jesus, he'd already faced this temptation right after his baptism, whenever he was led out to be tempted in the desert. You might remember that. He's actually faced all of these, um, these temptations. If we think about it, the first way he's tempted is to turn uh, stones into bread. That could be like what he could do, right? Like, ooh, look at what his identity could have been. He can make stones into bread. Or um, the second temptation was for him to leap off of the, the tip top of the temple, which would have like wowed all the people and, and made them say all kinds of great things about him. And then the last temptation, though, was for him to stand and look over all the kingdoms of the world. And he was told that if he would just bow down and worship the tempter and worship the evil one, that all of this could be his. 
And in that moment, what Jesus did is resist that temptation to not even like give it a moment's thought. But you have to wonder, I think, as Jesus went along from that place into his ministry, as all these people started following him around, as all these people um, started um, started to, to seek him out, as people are ooing and awing about these miracles that he's working, about this wisdom that he is giving them, you have to wonder if Jesus, who was fully God but also fully human, if this temptation ever rose up in his heart and his mind again. If maybe there was times where, where he considered, you know, basing his identity on the following and the fame that he was amassing for himself. The fact that people were talking about him and the likes of the greats like John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah, that meant that he had this, this great potential to amass all kinds of power and prestige for himself. But again, whenever we do that, how much is enough? How much is enough stuff? How much is enough success for us to build a firm foundation for us? Um, I heard a story recently about a heavy metal guitarist. Y'all know this isn't my lane, okay? Like, I don't listen to a lot of heavy metal. Jeremy likes heavy metal. Brian, you like heavy metal. Anybody else like heavy metal? This is your day. This is for you today. Lincoln, you like heavy metal? Oh. Okay, well, that's good. Well, then maybe you can track with this. But I heard a story about this guitarist, um, and he had like been like on the brink of something great. His heavy metal band had just gotten signed to a record deal, and they were about to start recording their very first record. He had arrived. But guess what happened? They kicked him out of the band before they started recording. They were over in like New York, I think, and he had to get on a bus and ride all the way back to California, which gave him a lot of time to think about things. He's like mulling over like, what went wrong? What did I do? Uh, but as he goes along, he starts to also formulate a plan. He decides in his mind, like, hey, here's the deal. Like, they're going to regret this. I'm going to start my own band. We're going to get signed. We're going to record our own records. And we're going to be bigger than they ever will be. And, and they're going to have to watch me on TV. And they're going to have to listen to my songs on the radio. And so he got off that bus determined. And sure enough, he started another band. And sure enough, they got a record deal. And the first record that they made went gold. He toured the world, sold out stadiums, got awards, was regarded as one of the most brilliant musicians in the history of heavy metal. His name is Dave Montaigne, and the band was Megadeth. Does anybody know Megadeth? Yeah, probably heard of them. Okay. And so together they, they did. They accumulated all these accolades. But guess what? The band that he got kicked out of was a little band called Metallica, <laughs> which is the biggest heavy metal band of all time. Megadeth never overtook them in prestige. They never overtook them in popularity. And so Mustaine admitted in a rare interview, despite everything that he had accomplished, despite how beloved his band was, that he still perceives himself as a failure. Enough was never enough. The truth of the matter is we can like hoard as much sand, as much stuff, as much success as we want to try to solidify who we are. But at the end of the day, sand is still sand. And that sand is going to shift when the rain and the wind come. 
if Jesus was tempted to find his identity in what he did or what did others said or in what he accumulated, what we know from what comes next is that he didn't take the bait, right? He hears this answer of the disciples and he doesn't even give it like a moment's thought. He hears what they say about what people are saying about who he is and he just immediately asks them another question. He says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? He, he wasn't trying to figure out who he was. He knew who he was, all right? But what he wants to know is if those closest to him, those who've been following him around day in and day out, those who are literally covered in his dust from being so close to, to him as he's going along his path, if they got it if they were seeing it, if they understood who he truly was. Because right after this, what Jesus is going to do is tell them, hey, I'm going to have to die, and we're going to head toward Jerusalem where it's going to happen. And Simon, who I adore, probably because he's like my exact opposite, he is like all act now, think later, um, all heart, he just blurts out the answer to everyone, right? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, you are the one that all of Israel has been waiting for. You are the one that the prophets have talked about. You are God's chosen one. Messiah means anointed one, chosen one. Come to set all things right. Jesus's identity was not based on what he did or what people said or what he accumulated, but rather his identity was found in who God himself said he was. And I want you to remember where he is saying this, okay? He's, he's having this confirmed, this conversation is taking place, first of all, in this place where people have come for thousands of years trying to figure out who in the world God is. This place where they've come to worship the divine. And Peter has just proclaimed that the divine has arrived. <laughs> that he has come in person. If people were wondering what God looks like, then they didn't need to look any further. They just needed to look at Jesus, the Messiah, the living son of God who was standing right there. But also remember that as this conversation is taking place, they're likely standing on this rock, this boulder, this cliff, overlooking all that is below, which makes what Jesus says to Peter even more meaningful, even richer. This is what he says. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Recognizing who Jesus is solidifies who we are. That's what happens for, for Simon. Jesus immediately changes his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock, because Peter has identified that which is solid, that which can endure the wind and rain, that which is not shifting sand. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and because of who he is, we can discover who we truly are. We are who Jesus says we are. This rock upon which Jesus will build his church that the gates of Hades, remember, if we go back to the picture, which people believe was through that opening of the cave, but also is, is talking and speaking about death, 
that the gates of Hades that death will not overcome, this rock that he's talking about, it's kind of like layered in its meaning. Because yes, Peter will become a rock on which the church is built. He'll become a leader in the church. An actual church will be built on this rock by the fourth century. And then, and probably most significantly, the rock is also what has been confessed there in that place on that day that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Knowing who Jesus is solidifies who we are. He is God's chosen one who has chosen us right back. He is the one who willingly allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could truly live, so that we could be made whole and full. That's how loved, that's how valued we already and always are. We can build our lives on what we do or what people say or what we can accumulate, but all of it is sand. All of it can shift and be swept away. Or we can build our lives on the truth, on the rock of who Jesus is and who he says we are in return. So as you come to the table today, I just want to remind you what he says about who you are. He says that you are part of God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. You are more than a conqueror through him who loves you and you are a new creation. The righteousness of God, you are made fully alive in Christ. The one who on the night that he gave himself up for us, took the bread and gave thanks to the Father and then broke the bread, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup and he once again gave thanks to the Father. And then he gave it to his disciples saying, take, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink from it, do this in remembrance of me. As those who are serving and come forward at this time, would you pray with me, please? Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until that day when Christ returns in final victory and we feast together at his heavenly banquet. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.